God doesn't love you. Let's fear him. Hi, I'm Kevin Smith, and Red State is coming to theaters October 19th, 2011. That's right, it's the 17th anniversary of the release of my first film, Clerks. But rather than sell it to some other jackass, we're releasing that shit ourselves under our new Smodcast Pictures banner. But 10 months is a long wait, I realize, for a lot of people who want to see the flick, didn't get to see it at Sundance, where it played really well. So I'm bringing the movie to you personally right to a theater in your hometown that's right bitch welcome to the red state usa tour we kick off on march 5th at the world-renowned radio city music hall in new york city that's right red state in the blue state this is the official premiere of the movie you can be there walk the carpet see the movie we're gonna do q a afterwards michael parks probably gonna come out and sing some fucking songs it's gonna be a hoo. It's going to be a show. It's going to be fantastic fucking time. But it's not going to stop there because then we roll on through the rest of this great old United States of ours playing at Boston's Wilbur Theater, Chicago's Harris Theater, the State Theater in Minneapolis, the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, Close Hall in Indianapolis, the Midland Theater in Kansas City, Clark State Pack Center in Ohio, the Paramount in Denver, McAllister Auditorium on the Tulane campus in New Orleans, the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas, the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Theater in Georgia, McCall Hall, wow, that's tough to say, in Seattle, and the Wiltern in Los Angeles with lots more dates coming, and you can request a screening in your hometown. All you have to do to find out all this information, go to coopersdell.com. That's right, coopersdell.com. See the teaser, see a bunch of stuff that we've been putting up there to promote our movie, because we're going to do it ourselves. Why do we need some other jackass to sell the movie? It's like having a baby and then handing it off to some stranger being like, you raise it. Nobody knows how to raise your kid better than you, parents. And I'm a parent of Red State, so I'm going to take it all the way. I'm going to grow that lad or lass into a strong, tall adult. Now, fair warning, you are going to be paying more to see Red State on this tour than you would normally pay to go see any movie in your local multiplex. Uh, in some cases, maybe 10 times as much as you pay to see at the local multiplex. But here's the thing. You don't normally get a Q&A after a movie, do you, with the director? And you don't normally hear from special guests, including the great Michael Parks himself. This is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of deal we're talking about. You come to the show, ain't never going to be repeated anywhere else. Won't ever be the same. And I'm not asking you guys to pay much more than you're already paying to see me do a Q&A or a live Smodcast. And this time, I'm bringing you a goddamn terrifying motion picture shown in stately grandeur the way they used to show movies, one city at a time, one show at a time, like they used to do with Gone with the Wind and shit like that, man. We're kicking this shit old school, son. True fucking 3D. This ain't this bullshit 3D of you put on glasses and shit. I'm going to be in the third dimension, bitch, standing right in front of you. That not enough to get you to go to Red State USA Tour? Fine, let me sweeten the pot. Are you an Askew Universe fan? Do you love Jane, Silent Bob, Clerks? If you come to the Red State USA Tour, you are going to see props and costumes from the entire View Askew Universe. And we're getting ready for the official Askew Universe garage sale where we sell our past to pay for our future. Own shit worn by Jane Silent Bob in the movies and help us distribute Red State outside the ridiculously expensive and wasteful studio system. Ladies and gentlemen, anybody can make a film. And what we aim to prove with the Red State USA Tour, anybody can release a film as well. Who better to sell their art than the artist him or herself? Self-reliance is true independence, kids. Indie film isn't dead, it's just grown up. 
Welcome to Indie Film 2.0. Red State USA Tour. Come on out and see us. Kicking off March 5th. Radio City Music Hall in New York. And then rolling out through the rest of this great land of ours. Come see us, man. It is a once-in-a-lifetime experience you will never forget. And more importantly, you do this, you fuck with the stupid studio system. And maybe they put out a good picture every now and then. A little more dark night. You know what I'm saying? A little less cop-out. Uh-uh. Go to coopersdell.com for the tickets. That's C-O-O-P-E-R-S-D-E-L-L.com. That's where you can get all your ticket information, see all the posters for Red State, check out the spooky teaser, get everything you need. coopersdell.com. Go there right now, get yourself some goddamn Red State tickets, and join us on the Red State USA Tour, man. Fear God. I fear God. You better believe I fear God. Hey. Uh, how are you, everybody? Welcome to uh, the 10th, the I think. 10th or 11th? 10th? Whatever it is, the final Red State of the Union Q&A class. I'm Kevin Smith. Thanks for coming out. Um, it was an unorthodox idea at the top when we were trying to say, hey, come out and, and do this Red State of the Union Q&A thing. Y'all jumped in, did it, thank you. It was now easy to kind of explain to the world we put it up there. It's much easier to kind of get your head around and shit like that. But you guys were the 50 adventurous souls that did it first, so give yourselves a big round of applause. Um, next time we all come together, we'll be watching the flick. Um, and that'll probably be the, that week immediately post Sundance. Um, but for tonight, we're going to watch uh, a, a very long clip compared to what we've been used to watching. Uh, this is the longest clip we've seen yet uh, of Red State, and it's uh, spoiler-filled, so I'm probably not going to put that out in the actual podcast. Um, Matt, you ready to roll? We're going to roll, and then I'll come back and chit-chat, and then we'll get into talking with uh, Michael. So enjoy. Welcome, family. Good evening. Good evening, Grandpa. Good evening. What's the good about it? Psalm 117, verse 24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, it's me if I preach not the Gospels. Corinthians 9, 16. Amen, Grandpa. Oh, well, I got an amen. I'm the baby Melanie. You like what Grandpa was saying to pre-baby? Mm-hmm. No. I do. You do? Mm-hmm. And then Grandpa, mm-hmm. a minute. Thank mm-hmm. you, Always unto me if I preach not the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, that is uh, just a tiny piece of the best performance I've ever seen in my life, and I had the privilege of seeing it on my own set, and it all stems from one night 
many years ago in this town. It's about 16 years ago now, back in 1995. One night, Bob Weinstein was like, uh, do you want to go see this new Quentin movie? And I was just like, from Dust Till Dawn, the one that he wrote and Robert is directing. Yeah, you know, it's mine. And I was like, absolutely, man, where? And he's like, we're showing it at the Lemley in a private screening. It's going to be awesome. So, um, I went and, um, it was, it was great. You know, from Dust Till Dawn, it was a wonderful, fun fucking time. But, um, I, I had a transformative moment in the first few minutes of that, that movie. Uh, anybody who knows that picture, knows that in the first few minutes, uh, Mr. Michael Parks comes in and just fucking drops a performance clinic. Well, I was unfamiliar with Mr. Michael Parks at that moment in time, but right then and there, I, I was beyond smitten. It was love at first sight. I was like, that, that's a fucking actor, man. That's somebody who can take something and deliver it in such a way where A, I don't even think he's acting anymore. B, he seems like a real individual. And C, nobody else is doing it. It's rare um, when you're a creature like myself, somebody who's a fan of acting, performance, so much so the guy got into filmmaking because of it. It's rare when you find that person that does something nobody else does. The guy who really knows where the fucking puck is going, so to speak. And when the movie was over, I was there with Scott Mosier. I remember talking to him and I was just like, I'm going to work with that guy. And he was just like, who, George Clooney? And I was like, no, the guy in the beginning, man, that cop. I said, that dude's fucking genius, man. Could you imagine spending fucking a month on a set with that guy, just watching him make choices, just watching him take the dialogue and make it fucking sing? It was like writing music and then handing it to somebody who can really fucking play, like a, a true uh, prodigy of, 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 of what's on some instrument like this. The idea of being on a set with that kind of talent was just like, that was a goal for me. And it took a while. And I got to tell you, the movie is a dream come true on so many fucking levels. Uh, what lies in its future is yet to be seen. But I've already been paid a thousand times over. And I say that without having made a fucking dime on the movie. I got everything I ever fucking wanted from that moment back in 95. I, was, I just want to be on a set and watch this dude fucking work. And it happened. It took 15 years to make it happen, but it fucking happened. And it was payments every day, dividends out the ass, because every day Michael Parks worked on this movie, not only did he exceed my expectations and hopes and dreams, he fucking inspired me to go on at a time when I was just like, I'm done with this shit and this fucking business and all these people and shit like that. He reminded me that None of that shit matters. None of the sturm and drang matters. What matters is the fucking work. What's at the core of the goddamn work. I, I, I haven't worked with any geniuses until this movie. This man is a fucking genius. Can't say I'm the, uh, you know, first and foremost authority on all there is to know about Michael Parks. That definitely would belong to Quentin. But I can say that I probably must be the biggest Michael Parks fan on the planet right now. And everyone's about to join me this year. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, the guy without whom we wouldn't be standing here having this conversation, the guy without whom I wouldn't have made the best film I've ever made and ever beyond ever thinking I could make, Mr. Michael Parks.
Thank you very much. Thank you. It's my theater, and I've never even gotten a standing ovation, man. That's that's pretty fucking impressive. Very nice. Um, it's uh, a nice piece of acting that we got to put up there. Um, uh, a really uh, a tremendous piece of acting. It's under, I'm underselling it, saying a nice piece of acting. What follows it in that scene, for the scenes to come, uh, it, these people are in for a ride. Um, but you got to, before we get there, take us way the fuck back. To the beginning, because you're what, 70, 71? What's your real age right now? Darling. <laughs> Girl, never. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, IMDb says 71. 1940. So, so I'm not there yet. 71 in April, yeah. So seven, oh, 1940. Okay. When do you decide to become an actor? 1939. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, uh, when I was driving truck for United Sanitation, I thought, I've got to do something. <laughs> so you were driving garbage truck? No, no, toilets. To- what do you mean? Driving toilets uh, around? No, you're cleaning out toilets, you fool. Latrines? <laughs> Four holers, you know, the, the old construction, steez? you know, Johns. Yeah, like a porta potty. Yeah, porta potty. I thought you had me going back to like Little House on the Prairie. I'm like, outhouses? <laughs> Not the equivalent, except you suck it out. But, uh, the last day on the job was, was, uh, it was raining and the truck locked, uh, brakes. And it was clay, you know, wet clay and it was November or something. I just slid on and hit this two holer and it, 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 it and I hear, God damn son of a bitch. Now, <clears throat> <laughs> and the toilet's like this. Toilet's leaning yeah, on the he, side? He, he, he's back this way. The dude's uh, sitting on it still? The toilet was knocked back. You know, you see against the wall in the back. The crap, <laughs> crap, crap, urine, everything. Covered in, in, uh, in content. So, uh, and a couple of welders come down, and I go, I'm trying to help him out. Well, he wants to kill me. And, <laughs> and he was trying to get his hammer out, but he had so much crap on it, it's slippery. He couldn't get his hammer out. <laughs> so, so the guy says, you better get the hell out of here, pal. I said, I'll go in there. At the time, I was doing a play, really. Because poor Vivian is a Spanish girl who played the View from the Bridge, Arthur Miller. Mm-hmm. I played Rodolfo in this one, Eddie and another. But anyway, she would, uh, we had a love scene. And then that period, my mother used to say, get away from the heater. You know, because you just, you never lose. <laughs> You never lose the smell, you know. Anyways, <laughs> smell like a toilet. So there was a love scene in the play that she dreaded. I mean, you could see <laughs> in her eyes every night. Every because night. she, because you oh, reeked of shit. Had, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't get it off. You can. I mean, no, it's on. Brillo pads, nothing, nothing. When I was a child, I used to uh, mimic like my mother. My mother was incredible. And singer. And I would just do, you know, somebody came around with me. Usually after they left, once I impersonated this poor bastard. And his name was Frank James, I never forget. And he owned a car lot in Corona. And he had St. Vitus Dance. And there I was doing him, you know, right next to her. Well, Jesus Christ, my mother had fingers longer and I went away from home. And bump on the head. 
Because you were impersonating? Yeah, I, did, I didn't think it was insulting. It was just something to do. <laughs> Wasn't insulting? Well, if the guy see, if the guy's got St. Vitus and he sees you doing it, I see you'd think it would be a... <laughs> <laughs> so you put a little spaz into the oh, impression? Oh, yeah, I did. I would do the whole thing. Look like Jerry Lewis on speed. And, uh, <laughs> my mother thumped me hard when I saw it. I learned that. But, but my grandmother used to think I was funny oh. when I was little. And I guess it encouraged me. And it's fun to do. And I've been very lucky. You have been... Especially lately, Kevin. <laughs> yes. Um, let me ask you, wait, before you go any further, in terms of fun to do, is it fun? Because I've never seen somebody put in so much work and not like uh, put in so much work and yet it, make it seem effortless. Is, is it fun? With you it is, pal. Uh, and I mean it. Oh, my God. Tell you a brief story. Good. I... The first three weeks of the Bible, John, he said, John. It, it was, it was, uh, it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then he did something which I won't discuss because he's not here to defend himself, but he was, he was, uh, cruel. Cruel? Cruel. And I called him on it. Well, he didn't like that. So then from then on, though I finished the picture and had to go back and do some more, which really wasn't used in the picture. Mm-hmm. Down that same old road, kid. That's an awesome John Houston, man. I felt like I was in Chinatown for a second. What did he, what did he, what was he, why did he have you shoot stuff that he wasn't intending to, to use? (laughs) (laughs) Just that? Did you see the snake, kid? You know, and she, Ula Bergerud played Eve and she would, and I said, Ula, I could see something was wrong. Ula, what's wrong? She said, have y'all seen? I mean, I said, Swedish. I said, no, no, I haven't. She disappeared in with these trainers, you know, a quarter mile apart. And uh, so I went to see this. I'm saying it, kid. No. I said, oh, my God. I said, well, I'll tell you, John, right now. And this is when he didn't like me. I said, I'll tell you right now, that's Ula. You, you're not going to find her in Italy much longer if you keep that son of a bitch around. You know? <laughs> Snake. What? I said, absolutely. Man. You try and tell her. You tell her. Tell her to work with that goddamn snake. She was scared to death of the snake. Near the third row, you know. Big snake. So I said, um, but I have an idea. So I convinced him and Dino to use a... I was taking ballet classes because it was some Italian good instructor in Rome because John had me doing several uh, impersonations of animals, so which he never used in the film. He shot that, tons of crap. You know, they, <laughs> he had you doing impressions of animals? Animals. <laughs> Horses kicking, running, you know, like a bird flying off, something, you know, strange. Just doing that on camera, like pretend you're a bird. You're right, he was a cruel man. Oh, he was, he was, yeah. But anyway, so I convinced him to use this ballet teacher, dress him up, put a costume on him, paint him so just right, and he played the snake. And he's wonderful in it. But then I was down in Florida, and and the agents called and said, "Uh, Otto Preminger wants to meet you. You're going to love this because they're such pricks. (laughs) So, So I said, okay. So I go up to New York. And it was the reason why it was Horton Foote, the writer, recommended me. I, I knew Horton, and he, he, he liked my work, so, and I love his work. 
Whose? Horton Foot. You're just going to keep dropping legendary no, names just, all night, aren't you? you like, okay, I'm just going to let you gloss over them, too. You're like Horton Foot anyway. On to my other John Houston's turn. Go ahead. No, and Otto Preminger now. Good <laughs> God, motherfucker. Oh, oh, yeah. They're both assholes. Pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> An asshole has a function. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I go up and, and Otto Preminger, I knock on the door. Come in! I come in, and he's sitting behind his And Horton's over there. He says, hey, Horton, hello, how are you? How are you? Oh, Michael, you look good, you so are you. He says, sit down, please. And he said, honest, got truth now. He says, John Houston tells me you're an awful person. <laughs> you're impossible to work with. Awful person, John Houston Terry. I said, nice to meet you. Uh, bye, Horton. <laughs> he gets to the door and he says, Where are you going? I said, I'll let you. Kind of whipping boy on his. The fuck are you? So I leave now. The agents go, What did you do? I said, What did I do? Why do you ever ask it? The next time you ask him, I'm going to fire you. Why didn't you ask what he did? I'm scared to death of the bastard. But he was. Sid Kaiser told a story. He was a, you know, love this one too. He was an uh, assistant. I uh, was on, um, Exodus mm. with, uh, Newman and, um, the girl, ba ba ba. The shooting, and it been, he's God's point of view, you know, and the two of you see the top of Newman's head and, and hers. Mm-hmm. And there's an extra, it's been 18 days, hotter than out the hell, and an extra sitting there reading the foreword or something in a big, Locks on his teeth, and he, he's kind of dizzy from the sun, you know, and he gets up and he walks right through the scene. That's like, you know, 18th take. Right. And all Primature does is this. I mean, I, you love the story because you're the antithesis. Primature goes, Kill him! in the old days I take it <laughs> um, what uh, how did you get on to the Bible how did you get that gig how did you get a big uh, Tommy studio? Shaw I, it's a little picture Brandon produced thing called Wild Seedle black and white picture and and uh, Tommy was what well, held that all together it wasn't two scenes took place in the same location on that movie mm-hmm. shot it in 23 days you know black and white on trains and all kinds of mm-hmm. And Tommy had a bulldog, you know. He had 10, 11 kids. He said, I'm, you know, told Houston that, uh, how wonderful I was. And so Houston said, I said, I want you to do, uh, Abel. I said, I won't do Abel. I'll do Cain. Doesn't do with Abel. Fuck, takes thump in the head with <laughs> he says, uh, "No, I've got, I've got Richard Harris for that. I've got Richard Harris." I said, uh-huh. "What about a Damo? You know, a Damo?" Well, uh, yeah, uh, interesting. Uh, wasn't until I was on the flight to Paris in the room. Mm-hmm. On that flight, midway, I realized that I had to be. Stark naked. 
He didn't bring I mean, that didn't up, or even, you didn't remember from the I story? Didn't, I didn't even think. When he, when he first had, when Dino first had, I mean, it really was. It really was, I said, Jesus, H. Christ. Over on the Buford hanging out? I mean, that <laughs> <laughs> was tough. And was it? Did he make you be naked the whole time? Well, most of the time, yeah. Most of the time you had to put something on if I come out of brush because I might just go, you know, you never know. <laughs> something to cover? Something to protect in case you had a thorn Once, patch? One time, went to, went to the rushes one time, and Savannah Mangano, who was beautiful, gorgeous, remember? Bitter rice, ever see that? Mm-mm. Oh, whew. He's married to Dino. Beautiful, beautiful. And she decides to come to the rushes one day. Well, it's a day when uh, one of the takes is bad because as I'm walking up, the wind blows the reeds right away from the front of me. You know, they shut everything. Like, you know, right, right. It'd be covered up to here most of the time. So the reeds go away. And and I was there, fucking... there it was, and uh, she gave me a look. <laughs> <laughs> it was like this. <laughs> oh, dirty bastards. <laughs> she, you should not have run that clip. <laughs> anyway. How long was the, the Bible shoot? Well, I was there for <sighs> six months at once, and then I went back for another four, which we shot and never used any of it. They didn't use anything from the four months. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big, expensive movie. 20 million at the time. With, and what year is that? 63, 4. So that's fucking huge. Yeah, big, big. Where did, it, uh, where did that lead? Where did the Bible lead? Like, does that lead right to the uh, next fl- uh, flick? Does that put you no, I was in troubled. those years on trouble. a fast John track? Houston. No, John Houston. Man. There's a guy writing a book about John, and he called me, got a hold of me. Somehow, I don't know. But anyway, I called him back. Mm-hmm. And as we were talking, I said, well, you know, they, they deified the man, and he was really mean. He was really mean. And uh, you're... White Hunter, Black Heart. You ever read the book? No, no, no. Peter Saw the movie though. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. But anyway, uh, so the, he was writing the book, and he contacted this guy at Twentieth Century Fox. It was the head of uh, PR, and the PR guy contacted Houston when the Bible was getting ready to be opened, and he mm-hmm. said, "Where should we send Park?" <laughs> Houston said, "Why not? Why not the seashell?" Or just do him in. <laughs> All right, so then what happens after that movie? What did happen? I don't know. I went up in a picture with um, Jennifer Jones mm-hmm. and myself over in London. The Idol. Let's see. I didn't know. Crappy movies. Couple. Real crappy. Really crappy. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and the uh sixty eight uh uh-huh. I did um pilot for Bronson, the series I did. I did a series for a year. Now who who can did somebody come to you with that or Yeah, uh you know the head of the studio said to the casting guy Yeah, you know, you know anybody that rides a motorcycle and the actor. Yeah, Michael Parks rides a motorcycle, well part was mine, I guess. <laughs> really? Is that? Just because you knew how to ride a bike? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was living, I was in the 64 Triumph, Bonneville at the time. And I did, but it wasn't mine. That wasn't my scene, you know. Mm-hmm. 
But I used to transportation for years and years. I used to ride. But anyway, so I met with a cat, read the script, said no twice. Because it was uh, at the time there was um, Dennis Hopper and uh, Peter Fonda mm-hmm. doing Easy Rider. So I thought they might catch something out of that. Where did it air? Which network? NBC. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it went for a year? Went for a year, but it syndicated 26 years. Same shows, 26 shows. Just kept running and running. Well, I showed them how wrong those bastards can be. Um, and you recorded, is that the first time you recorded an album? You recorded uh, more than one album, I know that, like three albums, no. but was that the first one? I recorded the first album before I did the pilot. Uh-huh. And uh, probably my agent at the time, you know. Mentioned to them that I sang, and so they needed something on the show, blah, 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 blah. But did no uh, PR for it. You didn't? You they, didn't they didn't. They didn't. MGM never spent a nickel. Fortunately, uh, Columbia had a, um album of the month club, and they put they put mine as the album of the month. Mm-hmm. And it went, sold a quarter of a million, practically overnight. Get out of here, really? Yeah. Um, John Carradine. Yeah, John, who was wonderful then. He lived up in uh, out of Oxnard, and it was a place of art called the Whale's Tale. Uh-huh. So whenever I run into town, I run into him. He'd say, "Oh, I don't need So we go, and he'd tell wonderful stories, wonderful, 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 wonderful stories. And one one night we're sitting there, and he's telling. Now he he did forty different productions of Hamlet, not just forty performances, forty different productions. With multiple performances mm-hmm. per production. Mm-hmm. So he was talking about how you adjust to different Ophelias and Claudius and blah, blah, blah. And this guy comes up to him. Like death eating a cracker, this son of a bitch. And he had <laughs> uh, stringy, shitty, dirty hair and beard. And he says, hey, man. I said, you know, when I played Hamlet, man, I mean, I, you know, Frisco, when I played Hamlet, man, I mean, he's Ham- Hamlet's uh, crazy, man. I mean, you know. I mean, if you don't get that man, you you know, he's grim. Curtis said, he said, well, you can blame crazy on the soliloquy. I mean, what the fuck do you do? Who are the big names that you work with, like uh, of the Caridian level? You worked with cats, like legendary Hollywood cats and whatnot. You didn't tell me a Betty Davis story. Yeah, yeah, Betty. Loved her. She was great. Would you work with her? Ah, uh, we had a little television show. She had a uh, apartment not far from the Chateau Marmont, mm-hmm. and uh, she lived on the rooftop. She had a garden in her, and an actress named Mary Louise Weller, beautiful blonde actress, I worked with in Florida, lived there. But the, most of the occupancy were gay, you know, like eighty percent gay. Mm-hmm. So they were talking about putting a sauna, you know. So they had, had this discussion. So finally, finally, this one. Mary said, he said, has anyone talked to bats? Has anyone talked to bats about the sauna? You know, because I don't have to go in, they all have to go in together. So Mary looks up and she sees her, she's watering on her roof. <laughs> right on her roof. This is typical Betty. And so one looks up, so bats, bats, we're talking about putting a sauna in. We want to know if you'd be interested. <laughs> he said, putting a sauna. She said, I'm no Yankee pussy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, boy. Yeah, I love a lot of beautiful cats. Richard Burton. There was a guy came out. We were shooting in Berlin. So the guy comes over and he says, <clears throat> said, why would you do this picture? This is just a poor remake of the Iron Cross by Peckinpah. Why are you doing this picture? Burton said, well, love, every chance I get to kill Germans. <laughs> 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 so, so now we segue. He wants to go to Mitchum. I say, yeah, This is fun. <laughs> so I take over Bob. This guy. So he says to him, He said, Did you, did you, how do you approach your acting, Mr. Mitchum? I said, Wet my lips and walk through. I says, well, he said, Did you ever feel you were neglected because you never got the Academy Award? So never got the Academy Award. Bob looks at me. He says, "Academy Award." He looks at Ken. He says, "My mother always told me you didn't get diamonds at Macy's." And it, and it really says it because what it, what it really is about is it's not talent. I mean, ability. I mean, it's another, probably some guy in Des Moines could wipe me out right now doing theater. I mean, you never know. But it's opportunity. It's all opportunity. You know, and my wife uh, despised the idea that I did this little thing with uh, Quentin. It's dusted on because it was not, it didn't show. I mean, I, I didn't stay around long or whatever. I don't know what it means. Mm. But anyway, I said, no, I'll have fun doing it. And thank God, because you saw it. Yeah. And uh, so I got this part. But, you know, it's the opportunity. And every time I see one of those people in the Academy Awards say, you know, I deserve this. And you want to just move in there. It's about time, one of them said. About four or five years ago, if you remember. Yeah. Oh, what tasteless people. Can you imagine? Hollywood. Um, I saw a clip online, uh, John Gordon sent it to me a few weeks ago, um, where he's just like, uh, this is Parks in a way you've never seen him before. And it was a clip from, I guess Johnny Cash had a show. Oh, yeah. And it was, I don't know how else to describe it, except it was essentially a music video. It was you singing the song. Yeah, he had a two hour, uh, your dad probably. Very, yes. Loved it. Yes, no uh, doubt. He had a two-hour, yeah, he was a beautiful cat. God almighty, I never heard uh, John ever judgmental about people in years. I don't remember when. I mean, I am sometimes, but John wasn't uh, judgmental at all. My God. When, I was, when I did his show, um, it was at the old Ryman, you know, the old opera house, mm-hmm. got opera. And I'm in the wings, and he's introducing me. He's, right at the moment he's introducing me, he was, and the introduction was like, Tonight on our show, we have for you direct from Hollywood, California. You know, Michael. Just as he's doing this, George Goble comes up. You remember George? Yeah, Lonesome old comedian. Yeah. Oh, goddamn! And he had this enormous Stetson on. He looked like a mushroom. You know, he's short. And he had, and he had an oversized, had an oversized guitar. And he says to me, "Want a drink?" I said, "No, no, not right now, not right now." He says. You smoke? I said, no, no. No, 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 no. He said, you mean you go out there alone? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, we, so that appearance that I saw, that clip, yep, that wasn't just a one-time thing. You were actually friends with John, Johnny Cash. Well, no, I'd never met him. I'd known, but of course, for years, and uh, he was a fan of the show. He, when he called me, I couldn't uh, I got arrested at that time. And I wasn't allowed to work on any networks. You got a, who got arrested? Couldn't get. You couldn't arrested. get arrested. Okay, I was like, oh shit. Big difference. Yes. Wouldn't have minded. <laughs> but anyway, uh, when he said, uh, "Would you do my show?" I said, mm, "You bet." I said, "No." I mean, I, I was so poor I couldn't afford to pay attention. <laughs> and I, I, I said, well, "How much you get? How much? How much you do? You know." The show, he says, they pay $7,500, Michael. I said, can you get me 10000 <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that. So, call, yeah, I'll call you right. He called me five minutes. You got 10000 Will you do my show now? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> Had a great time with him. We went to Smithsville. It's the only time he took off during the whole season of filming. We hung out in Smithville. I told him he never ridden a motorcycle. I was teaching him how to ride. And that's what you guys are doing in that clip. In that clip, they showed a piece yet. Yeah, yeah, of you guys riding. It wasn't really a big bike. I forget. It was a little dirt bike. And you guys remain, did you stay friends after that? No, I don't stay friends with much of anybody. I mean, I, I, I call him, you know, and every now and then he'd come out and do a concert. He'd get a hold of me if he was in Anaheim or something, give me seats. All, you know, he was a sweetheart. What was the, the Lenny Bruce story? Did you be Paul Bearer for yeah. Lenny Bruce? Yeah. Uh, Lenny was, um, there was a, there's a cat named, um, um, Enrico Banducci, who owns, uh, owned a restaurant up North Beach. And it was the only outdoor restaurant in North Beach. And he owned the Hungry Eye also. Mm-hmm. Lenny worked there. He worked at, uh, Hungry Eye. Mm-hmm. And it was a place to hang out, you know. It was a place to, Enrico's had big booths, leather booths, and um, a lot of laughs, a lot of jokes. Lenny was, one time, 1961, maybe. It's right where the uh, Los Anaga and Sunset, mm-hmm. and right on the corner there, when I told him, like a five-star, was the first Playboy club. Yeah, so Lenny was playing there. Now we come out, and at that time, at three o'clock in the morning, because we hung out inside for a while, I mean, three o'clock in the morning, you could shoot a cannon down sunset. I mean, you, there was you, no cars, you know. Mm. And, uh, I had two joints of Acapulco gold. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, you got uh, five years for a joint in California. And Lenny's got hypodermics on him. Now he's talking to these two hookers bookends, except one was black, one was white. They dressed alike, looked alike, except one black, one white. So, so and I see the cops. And they're driving slow down says, We're the only clowns right out front of the playground. I mean, two hookers, obvious. <laughs> so I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, what the fuck? So I said, Lenny, Lenny. You see, yeah, man. I said, uh, Bing and Bob. Bing and Bob. Bing and Bob? Bing and Bob was an old jazz term that musicians, because Bing Crosby and Bob Crosby could drink all they fucking wanted to, but if the band drank, they were fired. <laughs> so, so they became, <laughs> so, so they became the cops. Bing and Bob then became cops. 
I said, bring it Bob. He said, he looked at Sam, he said, Falcon, let him get their own shit. He goes, <laughs> I don't have a watch, but I pretended I did. And I look at my watch, just to come up, I look at my watch, and I'm thinking, gee, and I look, and I see the cops, and I go, Chris, look at this idiot. You know, they just, and they went. They just waved you on. Well, I could kill him, I said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> but he was, uh, brilliant. Yeah. Then he was something. And a good cat. Really good cat. Good hearted cat. What, um, now, uh, tell me the story about uh, uh, Lou Wasserman. I don't know if I told you. Uh, uh, he talks like this in a pediment speech, just like this. The same Norton Simon. Norton Simon had the same impediment. So, uh, he tells me a story one time that he thought was wonderful. And when he, this period when he, I was, uh, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right. And uh, in his eyes, and he was God. I mean, he really was the most powerful man in that. Wasserman. Yeah, in the business for years. years. Lou but Wasserman he, was a dude that used to run Universal, not just Universal, but... Oh, but no, Deca, MCA, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Music as well, big time. He was, I mean... Well, here's how he got into it. Here's the story he told me. He was proud of the story. It was the most chilling story, one of the most chilling fucking stories I ever heard. He said... He wanted, he wanted to get, he was in, he was in music publishing, he and Jules Stein. So he wanted to get in as an agent. So he writes all these cats that went away to war, Second World War time. Clark Gable, Tyrone Power, Jimmy Stewart, he writes them all a letter and he said, because they all signed for, you know, $600 a week in case something happened to them. And I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the wife might, you know, the wife might. So, they all say, so he wrote a letter saying, if you sign with me as your representation, I will pay for all court costs. I'll break your contract with the major studios. Well, they all signed. But, what's your name? He said, uh, he's still alive, so I can't. He says, um, to Lou, well, they're gonna sue. They're gonna sue. And Watson said, let him sue. Captain Clark Gable, Sergeant Tyrone Bauer, Sergeant John Garf. I mean, and in one move, one move, and he, he owned the cream of the crop in Hollywood. He consolidated power in, in one move. way. One letter, he put different names on it. <laughs> one move, he owned it. I mean, the studios all had come. Everybody had to come to him if you wanted any of those people. What, um, so where, how do you guys intersect, um, and, and what is the, what's the moment? You, you, you I was working for Dick Powell, who was the sweetest guy in captivity. Mm-hmm. And he owned, uh, he and David Niven owned, uh, um, studio, they call it Four Stars at Republic Studios. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, Dick, I loved him to death. You know, before every take, he'd say, God is love. No matter what you did in the scene. You know, which had nothing to do with God is love, maybe, you know. He would literally say, God is God love. God is love. And you'd start the scene, but you felt anchored by him. He was a wonderful cat. In fact, they gave him, uh, the bank gave him 35 million, which was a lot of money at the time, to do some other productions. More, He had like six series on the air. Right. Seven, I think. And, um, cause I did them all. But he, he, when he, he took the money and then he found out he had cancer. Six months of lives, he went to the bank and said, uh, I can't take your money. 
a rare cat. Because he was the guy that was going to make it happen. Right. He didn't take that. I thought it was rare. I, you don't hear of it. Yeah, to go back and be like, hey, I'm going to die, so take your money. No, 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 no. Yeah, that is rare. Yeah, boy. But anyway, uh, and then I, uh, you know, used to make the audition in those days. So mm-hmm. I, I went over the day. I had 57 or some auditions for this one. Frank Severa told the director, I've got the guy. I'll bring him in. So I went in and sang from whatever it was and read the scenes or whatever. And the guy said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a Universal, and it was a show called uh, An Obelisk for Benny. And a fellow named William, William Wood wrote it. It was a hell of a good writer. He went back to teach at the University of the Midwest in Illinois. And he couldn't take uh, Gollywood. So, uh, and Wasserman saw it because it was a uh, first season and said, uh, we'll, we'll make him a star. But, uh, you know, you find out over the years that it's not because he was. You know, when I had problems with when they withheld money and I sued them and I won because mm-hmm. Garner had set the precedent. You know, least James you Garner, do, the judge said, least you can do is pay the man. You know, out of the contract. So they said, okay, we'll go to trial. I said, let's go. So I went to Clarkcroft in Mexico and chopped wood for a living and sit and waited and waited and waited. Of course, two months before the trial, they called and said, why don't you do the movie? The agents called. They just want you to do the movie of the week, you know, and then you get out of the contract. I mean, that's nice of them. I don't know. Yeah, you chop wood, you son of a bitch. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, but, but I did. I went back and, uh, and when I did the Bronson Pot of MGM, seven o'clock in the morning in my house, there was a guy, a chauffeur come up with a telegram. First one. You uh, always will be a wonderful talent, Lou Wasserman. So he was not, you know, he would go and, uh, So he sent you an encouraging telegram. Favorable. Congrats, oh, yeah. yeah, congratulatory yeah. telegram. Oh, yeah. He was not, uh, and I never had a, a I had, I, it was, if it's something, you know, we all have regrets and shame, and if you don't, you aren't worth a pile of beans. Mm. It's the only way you learn. Yeah. And uh, he was never rude, really, to me, except once, which, and I was rude back. But I shouldn't have been. I should have just looked at him would have been enough. But I didn't. I had to respond. But he said, you know, this is a small, small town, Michael. You know, where it's very close-knit here. And, and, uh, I have 4,000 people in my family, you know. Any one of those fucking lines. But anyway. <laughs> anyway, so... And sometimes, you know, you have problems, it's uh, difficult to find work, you know, like a threat. Yeah. And out his window, because he made all the people in this building sit with their back to the window. No view for you, pal. You go to work. And you could walk in, you could see the whole valley, you know, that monster. Beautiful view, yeah. yeah monster black. You know, the black tower. Obelisk. Yeah. Then he said, come on. And I said, oh, really? I said, is that yours? I pointed over my shoulder and it was Warner Brothers. Well, he turned around with that look, and I would see the thermometer was like this, you know, close to his brain. And thanks for coming in, I said, and, and I knew that I, sh- I shouldn't have, because he was right. You know, they, they, those cats all ate together, drank together, talked together, played golf together. Small you know, town. It's small, small town. So if you, all they have to hear is trouble. 
But that comment was be, enough just for you to be, be like, is Warner Brothers yours? That was enough yeah, for that dude enough to, to be like, we're done here? Piss him off. Oh, I mean my attitude? Well, for him. Oh, for him, it, yeah. For him it was an insult. Yeah, it was terrible. I shouldn't have done it. I was much too frisky. I should have just said, uh, well, you're right, and gone on with what I was doing anyway. Uh, been all right. And that, what year is that? Around Bronson? You know the story, you know the story about the guys, he's an avid reader of westerns and he's in, works at the university. He used to run, you know, the New Yorker. And so he calls this kid and he says, he sees this old cowboy, 112, just died down in Texas, a very famous bronc writer, you know. Say, so he says, he calls this kid and he said, I want you to cover this story. And that's a novel later, even New Yorker, but I want you to cover this. He was this well-respected bronc bull rider and all. Okay. So it goes down in, down in Texas, as you folks might know, that outside all those little towns, the graveyard's about, you know, five to ten miles out of town. So they're out the graveyard and kids watching the guys. He looks up against this cottonwood and this gnarled old cowboy looks like a Remington standing against the cottonwood and kicks over and he says, I remember. He said, uh, he said, did you, did you know the deceased? I said, I went to school together. He said, you went to school together? Yeah. I said, really? Uh, were you in the same grade? He said, oh, two years later. He said, you were two years ahead of him. He said, how old are you? He said, I'm Hundred fourteen comes June. He said, "Really, right? Really? You know, it doesn't make too much sense that you go back to town." <laughs> and when you talk to me about the past, I feel like that old guy. <laughs> but I'm happy to do that. What is it you wanted to know, Mister Smith? What? So is that moment? <laughs> is that moment a uh, defining moment? Does that moment hurt the career? Does he then, does he, does he make it his it's mission not, in life? You know, it's not them. Like I was, the, what, the point I trying to make, it's not really them. It's, it's those scurvy bastards that work for them. Right. Because they never have the balls to say, the, well, I don't blame them, but they don't, you know, most of them don't have the balls to say the boss, are you nuts? Or something, you know, they don't have that. Mm-hmm. Or it's uh, down the road, Joe, you know. Mm. So they don't, and they resent you for it. If you call somebody on something, they resent you. They're the ones that, that kept me from working. It wasn't awesome. And awesome would have been happy if I'd have come back and did a movie or something. It wouldn't have bothered him. Mm-hmm. Funny, isn't it? it is but it is, but that's what it is. I mean, I mean it. The lieutenants are always the bastards. And so, and do you think there was Jeff definitely a kind of like stay away from his trouble? Oh, yeah, well. Sarnoff and me, did it. But we don't want to, I'm not here to, you know, my Uncle Pruitt, I said to him one time, why don't you ever complain? He said, well, uh, Topper, go and tell I don't think I could draw a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I loved him for that. And I'm not here to complain. No. I'm not really. I'm, no, but it's an important part of the narrative um, because mm-hmm. I, I think... God, Quentin does put you in from dusk till dawn because I probably wouldn't have known. I wouldn't. Yeah, have my God, him. yeah, my God. I knew Quentin before you did anything. He was. He, there was a gallus blonde, really pretty, and she wanted to. She wanted to manage me. Mm-hmm. 
And we talked about it briefly, and then she called one day and said, you know, the best thing we can do is, you know, people really love you. We should get the people that really love you, like Marlon Brando, people like that, to say, I said, uh, Pasadena. I mean, I can't even walk around with my hat in my Pasadena. hand. Pasadena. Oh, it's really, be sad, 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 sad. So we parted, you know, sweet parted. And then about six months later, she goes, there's this uh, writer who wants to meet you. Uh, you're his favorite actor. And I said, oh, really? And she said, now, I've read some of the scripts. He hasn't done anything yet. And done any movies yet, but he'd write to me. I said, well, if he hasn't done anything, he doesn't know everything. I'd be glad to meet him. <laughs> so we met, we had a, <laughs> that's true, you don't know. <laughs> and, uh, we met and, uh, played a couple games of pool, had a couple beers. I read, he gave me a bunch of his scripts to read. I read them. I said, Cam, go on, you're funny. I know that about it, man. You're funny. You keep at it. And then one day I was living on a uh, houseboat up a cement. It was so small, if you got on, I'd have to get off. And it was up in, in uh, out of Seattle in the San Juan Islands. Because Andy McLaughlin lived up there. And I went up to visit him. He said, why don't you stay up here, kid? So I went down and I rented a, a little boat. Oops. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get up one morning and I go into town. And I, there's a newspaper stand. And I... Opened the newspaper and it was Academy Awards day for little that I know. Fuck, I'm up, polar bear. So, I was like, oh, and I see the picture of this goofy bastard standing up with the Academy Awards. It's Quentin. <laughs> I was like, I knew that guy. But I didn't, you know me, I didn't call him. So, but he called one day. Hey, man! <laughs> and he'd written a script called Kill Bill, which was about Earl McGraw, the whole movie. He shelved it. And I couldn't get anybody's, I guess, attention with it or something. And the way, the original script for Kill Bill? Was, it was called Kill Bill, and it was all about Earl McGraw. It had nothing to do with the Kill Bill movies. But, the so real. he later took that title and put it on the movies. Right, right. What are you going to call it, Ching Wan Cha? Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway... Uh, <laughs> Somebody, like somebody speaks Mandarin. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, so then, uh, that's, it. and then when he called and, uh, hey man, I want you to, but it was Roberts, Rodriguez's idea. Now it just goes to show you about what it can mean. I mean, was I a day late on this show? Was I a minute late? Was I a second late? No. Did I ask for more takes? No. No. One time, four lines. And you helped. I'll never forget that. You said to me, it was perfect. It took it just a little right to perfect. You said, uh, be even sweeter. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, Robert said from Dust Dawn, he said, why don't you take the character of McGraw and put him up front in this movie? Put this, Put him up front in the scene in the movie. And he, and he, and Quentin said, hey man, I don't know if I can work with him, man. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe he's hard to, you know, man. Rodriguez said, what the fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you love the guy. Why don't you fucking hire him? Get it over with. So he did. And thanks to Robert, really. Robert told me. Give him a push. Yeah. And, but, uh, yeah, he's Quentin's. Lovely. Yeah, he's a strange bird. Quite nice. Yeah, but he's wonderful. That's uh, generous to a fault. 
Mm-hmm. Like Robert Paulson, very, very generous. What's uh, and they are both kind of geeky about performance too. I imagine they just uh, loved watching. Rodriguez, when when you when I did the picture, we had a bastard. When I did the picture, Dustal Dawn, he's I do the scene and he said, "Fantastic, man. Oh, I do it again." <laughs> I said, well, "Don't you didn't you get it?" He said, "Yeah, man. I just like to see you act." I said, "Oh fuck." <laughs> But you think you think he's on heroin? You would swear because it, it can be moving the world around him on his set, and he sits and strums the guitar, you know, plays. And, you know, I already thought of, you know the story about the junkie who goes in the barber shop. Immediately, long beard, long hair, he nods out, and the barber comes and says, uh, "Can I help you, pal?" He's young. She may have shaved and here Guy said, "Well, if you want to shave, you gotta lift your goddamn chin off your chest." And he goes, oh, "Fuck it, just give me a haircut." <laughs> <laughs> but Robert makes you think, and he's might be the first time I watched him work. I said, "Yeah, I gotta get some he's got." <laughs> But he's like that on the Natch. He's like that. Sweet guy. Um, what, uh, so you did that, you did the, the, um, uh, death, pr- the, what was it called? Grindhouse, death proof, planetary. You did the hangman, uh, the, from Dust Till Dawn too. Yeah. Was it the hangman's? Oh, man, they, they kept me working for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, but you know, Hollywood can be a one night stand, Kevin, you know that. Is I don't know. I've never Hollywood's ignored me, so I don't even know if it's a one night yeah, stand. Yeah, I love you, I love you, I love you, and then the next picture they never heard again. Right. Yeah, yeah, it is. But uh, I'll work with you again. I know that. Yeah, no doubt. I got. I need you to do French Canadian in the, in the next. We'll do flip. that for yeah. you. Yes. <laughs> Um, you've got, you'll have, you have a little experience doing that. You uh, played one of the Renaults. Was it Jean Renault yeah, or Jacques you know, Renault? Jean. Jean you Renault. Know, when, I, when I did this show, funny enough, I was staying at the... Twin Peaks. Yeah, the Chateau, and, and, and they were shooting out here in the valley, mm-hmm. the valley. And so I go, and this decidedly Jewish chick comes up to me, and she's directress, and she says, um, Oh, it's so wonderful to have you. I just love your work. I said, Thank you very much. She said, well, what makes you decide to do a show like this? I said, well, character. I love doing dialect. She said, you're doing a dialect. I said, yeah, French Canadian. She said, oh, just a minute. I'll be right back. Well, I didn't know, but she went in and she called Frost. Because she said in first, she said, you know, your brothers, the, 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 the Renault, they didn't have an accent. I said, that's their problem, sweetie. <laughs> so, so, so she goes in and she calls him Frost. said, let him do what he wants. One time at Universal, you'll love this. One time at Universal, I'm doing this West. It was the first two-hour movie ever done for television. Henry Fonda and myself. And Ann Baxter. And uh, Sal Menio had a part in it. So I do this. It was Terry Southern, who's a good friend of mine, a ride, the writer, Terry Southern. Terry a, Southern of Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah. He's amongst other one things. closest friends maybe I ever had. Really? Yeah. Lovely, lovely. Funny, funny. 
Yeah, well, shit, but, Christ, yes. But his, he loved that show. I did better than any show ever saw. It was a thick, thick, he had, we couldn't cut it, the accent. You know, around Turner Finchie and it like, I mean, when I'm doing right now, and it was just right on, right on. It was that thick? Yeah, boy. So, they, uh, now, they view it at this guy, the guy, shall go nameless, views it as, at his house. I found out later that's the reason, because they asked me to loop, to loop it, mm-hmm. just do it straight. I said, no, what are you talking about? And the handlebar, must have, I mean, a hole, chewed the bag of holes. Um, right there, it was right there. I really enjoyed that. Well, if you don't, I get this call from this guy. We got Doug McClure, we got, and I love Doug, he was a sweet guy. Doug was very good at voices, by the way. Mm. But he said, we got Doug McClure, we got so-and-so, we got so-and-so. I named them people, I said, okay, go ahead. But watch yourself on the way home at night. So the agents called a couple of days later and said, no, you don't have to loop it. It's all right, they, they like it. But I found out... <laughs> but I found out that... Um, and I probably shouldn't have told that story, but sometimes... <laughs> so I found out that his mother from Brooklyn had seen the showing at his house before it was on the air, of course, and said, standing. What's he talking? And that's what made him say, oh, you know, we've got, we've got to loop this. Because his mom couldn't his understand mother, it. His mother, his darling mother. <laughs> uh, but that's what I found out. Got to live there. Yeah, God Almighty. And and you and they would do it in a, in a heartbeat. They wouldn't care. Mm. They wouldn't care. Or you sounded like Tony Curtis. That was a good cat. You, you knew him as oh, well. Yeah, we worked together. Did a picture together called um, Club Life. Mm-hmm. He was the owner of the club, and I was the bouncer. Good Quentin, dude. Quentin stole a couple of lines of mine out of there and put them in Kill Bill. Which ones? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> he would tell you. He would tell you. How's he work? I don't know. He's, he's successful. <laughs> well, this is true. <laughs> I guess there's that. What, uh, on a set, does he, is he just, uh, oh, he's, you can know, he put the fan hat away and be, uh, be, uh, Michael Park's director? I found that very difficult to do. Well, you shouldn't if you like it. Well, I mean, anytime there was something off the beaten path, which was almost never, I was there. But yeah, generally I, speaking, when somebody is uh, uh, crushing it, you, there's nothing to say after every take except like, "Great, let's go again." Just the fuck of it, you know, stuff like that. And sometimes we didn't even go again. No, I didn't. I never want to. But you like it. I mean, I don't have to like it. I mean, I finish a scene and a mini second later I'm saying I should have done something different there. No. Yeah. We can go on and on and on and on. Could dissect and do it all together differently. Or maybe a shade touch better. It should have been that. You know. And you can go all fucking year with that. Right. You, know, you can just beat it to death for God's sake. Which do you like better than do you want to like do it in one and move on or do you want well, to Well if it happens, you know, mm-hmm. it's happening. If it's moving along, why not? 
That happened quite a bit on this yeah, flick. 98% of the time. Um, yeah, totally. It was like when, when you see the performance, uh, Michael's performance in the movie, know that that's not cut from like fucking reams of footage. There's a lot of that stuff that's cut from the one and only take of it yeah. in existence, but it was that strong. Um, let's, let's talk about the chapel sequence, uh, cause they saw a good 10 minutes of it. And so we, we've got a, a basis grounds for them to kind of know what we're talking about as opposed to normally we're always talking in, in hypotheticals. Um, you came to the set. Um, uh, Chucks, let me see. The f- week of production when we were starting with the boys, um, you came out and, you know, you were like, can I see the chapel? Um, uh, is the chapel done yet? And, you know, based on the budget, of course, we were always kind of, uh, doing things as late as we possibly could. So it was not to spend money, uh, too soon or whatever. But we had a floor down for the chapel already. So I was like, yeah, totally. We'll get you over there. You could kind of hit the chapel floor. And then I didn't know what it was that you wanted. I just assumed you just wanted to see the lay of the land. But you then went to work. Um, I guess, you know, you'd have the script for two, three months or something like that. You had it mapped out like a dance floor. It was amazing. Uh, it was one of those things that I never thought about when I was writing it, it was very little screen direction about he moves over here, he comes down from I the, had no idea. No. No. What you said to me, I wanted to just see it, because in my mind I needed to see it so that I could see myself up there. Right. That's all I needed was to see what what motel you're staying in for the next six months, you know, <laughs> in the movie. You know, whatever. Right. But no, you said, Well Adam, why don't you go map it out with him? Yeah. I said, what are you talking about? But, but I, so I went over with him and I just started talking and I'd walk and he'd make a mark and then I had to live with it. And that's the story. That's it? You didn't, yeah. really? Yeah. And I tell you, yeah. I've been and out there telling people like, this motherfucker came with a fucking dance floor. It was amazing. No, no, no. He knew exactly where to stand no, no, at every no, no, given no. point. And I, I read the script once when he sent it to me. And then I didn't read it until again until about a week, two weeks before we started mm. because you didn't have the money. That's right. Good point. <laughs> and I thought, why study this son of a bitch if it's if it doesn't happen? I mean, that's really masturbatory. So <laughs> anyway, but that's the truth. And and, and uh, I went out to that day just to see because they said, yeah, you can see the chapel. Yeah. Because I wanted to see if there was a podium, if there was whatever on the you know, and how big it was and what I had to reflect to. No. Why don't you map it out? He says. Mm. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. Mm. Um, Lady Coral Brown, actress, and she had a wooden leg. Actually, she was married to Vincent Price, mm-hmm. and wonderful character. And she had receding and thinning hair, so which really was important to her. And the ladies will understand it was a good wig. Whenever production she was in, she needed the wig. So this <laughs> cheapo. Producer, he gets this goddamn wig and it's like a fucking scouring pad, you know. <laughs> so, so she comes out and it's, and it's costume fitting in the room. So she's, she's really mad. And the little cat out there is, you know, stage manager, everything. You know, I absolutely love that brooch. Absolutely love it. I think it's perfect. And the shoes, of course. And your little, that parasol you enter, oh my god, what a time, she says. What about the wig? 
He said, the wig? He said, well, from here, it looks absolutely marvelous. He said, well, from here, it's like looking through a yak's asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it does mean something, character. I mean, the clothes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Beth said that it was, uh, she was, I was, when she was all done, because sometimes, uh, the costume designer will go out with cast and, and do clothes, pick out stuff. Um, but she said that's the longest I've ever spent with an actor. She's going, I can't tell you how much thought he put into each piece of clothing right down to the socks and underwear. She's very sweet. I love that. So I got over that by giving it over to you by just being like, you know what? Let him pick it because he's got to wear that outfit the whole flick, and that's he's got to be comfortable in those clothes. Well, he's a man of modest means. Mm. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's the first all important thing. Uh, I'll tell you a Jean Renoir story. Mm-hmm. Jean was doing uh, Swamp Water. And, uh, you know, the production managers right away want to prove to the director and the producer how clever they are, you know. I mean, it's their job. Right. So he says to Jean, Jean, exceedingly uh, French, and he says to him, uh, how many, how many, uh, how many chickens you want? Mr. Renoir at the meeting is, he says, chicken, uh, one. <laughs> one. So all the way through the picture, the guy's trying to give him goats. He's trying to give him, you know, because he's embarrassed. Are you sure you don't want a couple dogs? You know? Wonderful story. For me. <laughs> <laughs> is that the end of that story? Well, yes, it is, because that's their job. That's their job, is to get you nothing and you know, be happy with it. But the guy was so embarrassed that he, you know, one chicken, he's a poor man, you know. <laughs> So the guy's job was over. You know, so he had to, he had to, you know, try to get him to use more animals. Um, and a very giving man. He when he when he did uh, Diary of a Chambermaid with Pollock Goddard and, and Renoir. Yeah, he was coming back from Europe through New York, and he sat on the boat he and Dito, and then they went to New Orleans. And in New Orleans, he runs into the, the decorator, mm-hmm. set designer. And so he goes, and he's sitting at the Pantalbo, which is right on Jackson Square. So he came up to have coffee with him and opened the windows out to a nice veranda and everything at Jackson Square. And, you know, history. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Jean said, he's indeed lovely. Lovely. And he said, yeah, yeah. So now he gets back to Hollywood and just before the picture's about to start, he says, John, come down. I want you to see the set. And the guy had rebuilt. He spent all of his goddamn budget building this set he didn't even want. Renoir. But Renoir used it without saying a goddamn thing. Why? Just that guy? That's the way he was. That's the way he was. I mean, he couldn't. He just played the ball where it laid. Where it laid, yeah. One screamer. Went right on with it. Went right on with it. That was Jean. One of the great stories of acting is Jean Gabin, and um, I can't think of them. He was a lovely actor, French actor, and he he was also in uh, Rules of the Game. Mm. Played the owner of the machine, and he was the the, the Baron. Mm-hmm. 
But there's a scene with Jean Gabin and he, and Jean said it was his favorite scene. He said it was the best scene he, think, he thought he had ever written, and it's when they're near the border and the Swiss guards on him. And he's screaming at the guy. And they, Jean came and said, good morning, Jean, good morning, good morning. And he said, well, he goes get coffee, he goes back, and they're gone. He looks down the hill, and they're standing there, Gabin and the other actor, and he goes down, and he says, well, we don't do to rehearse. And he said, uh, Jean Gabin said, we can't say these lines, Jean. Unfortunately, he'd been shooting in sequence. And I said, what did you say? And he said, I said, uh, of course you can't. And they went down to a restaurant, and in 45 minutes, they had a scene they cooked, because they had alleviated all that was done in the past from the scene, mm. incorporated what was in, right in the present, and had the look of leaving in it. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of man. He was just committed. He believed in the art. It certainly wasn't a business for this man at all. Well, I don't know. I think he did a few pictures to save his ass. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. Yeah. You've been doing this longer than anybody in this room and probably anybody listening. Is it okay to, to do... <laughs> It's fair enough. Um, is it okay? As a dude who has been doing it for years, you have uh, the, the, the sum total of wisdom on your side, so naturally I'm always going to lend more credence to somebody who's been doing it longer than some jackass who's A, never done it, or B, doesn't understand what longevity means. Is it okay to do one for the money every once in a while? What do you talking about <laughs> why uh, listen I got two dogs <laughs> I got a house I got, you gotta pay for right. and I'm married to an Italian that eats <laughs> eats <laughs> and, and that doesn't come free that doesn't come free you know. I wanted to work with you because I liked you I liked you and I liked John. That was important to me. And I thought I could do something with it. Oh, you did? Yeah. But we don't know. We we do the critics get a hold of this one. Ah, <laughs> uh, boy. George Bernard Shaw said a critic was a guy that knew how to get there. He didn't know how to drive the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You drive a good car, pal. Me? No, I just... Yes, uh, you do. Yes, I've you watched do. a lot of people drive over the years, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very much like a critic. I know how to get there. I'm just not quite sure how the car works. Well, you siphon the gas. <laughs> that I did. Um, was it ever fun? Was it as fun for you to do as it was for us to watch? Or at least me for... Oh, sure. Well, no, the, the fun is in... Knowing, you know, it's cooking. Knowing that you're going to be that you're going to be pleased. Mm. That's fun. That's really fun. Why else? I mean, I don't want to go into how boring actors are. <laughs> uh, how they love themselves so much. I'm scared to death all the time. Of what? Of acting. Why? Well, because I mean, it's difficult. It's not easy. It's difficult. And any fool that tells you it's not isn't worth his salt. A funny story to tell you. I was on a plane one time going to New York to a 
movie of the week, I think it was. Money. Right. And uh, this guy comes up to me and says, how you doing? How are you doing? I forget his name. George Spitley or whatever. And I said, oh, can I sit down? I said, okay. He said, was that a, a movie script you're reading? I said, yeah, I put it away. I said, yeah, yeah, no, it was a television. Oh, he said, you know Mickey Rooney? <laughs> I said, no, no, I t- I've never met him. He said, well, you know, he came, a guy called me, he said, Mickey Rooney's coming out, uh, you know, we're, we're from Des Moines. I said, yeah. He said, and, and Mickey Rooney's coming out, and uh, he's, what the deal is, you can buy a point in a picture, something like for $20,000, or something like that. It might be interesting. Might be interesting. He wants to look for financing, and he's going to be talking at the club tomorrow night. You know, why don't why don't you come out and listen? He said, okay, so he goes out. He said he's a little guy, you know. He says to me, little guy. I said, yeah. He said he's sitting up on the piano with his legs crossed, like a chanteuse. He said sitting there. He said and he's telling us the story. He said, God damn, it went on and on and on and on. But he said, you know, in the story, it's a story about a guy condemned to death, and uh, and uh, in the last shot of the picture, they fry the bastard and and. And then the, the camera pans out. I said, you know, he said, uh, he says, Rooney says, you know, you shit, you shit when you die, you know. He said, so the camera pans down the leg and he follows the shit down onto the floor. And he said, and there's a big puddle of shit and it says the end. And I said, I said, I said well, now, so that's question and answer time. I said, well, Mr. Rooney, he said, uh, let me ask you a question. He said, uh, you know, when you pan, when you pan, panning down on the, Defecation's running down his leg. He said, now, do you use a tube or something and put some gravy in it or something like that? He said, no, oh, hell, he said, any actor that can't shit on cue isn't worth his salt. He said, I took my 20,000. <laughs> <laughs> True story, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, while we were making this flick, um, I, I've talked about, I talked about another podcast uh, recently. But uh, we, in the script, there were one or two places that called for doing an old church hymnal. Um, you uh, always had a better church hymnal. I think I, one time I'd written one in, and it was just wholly inappropriate for that particular denomination or, or, or you know, a Baptist-leaning or Baptist-seeming faith. You had excellent suggestions for two songs right away, and then when you sang them in the movie... On the day, it was so fucking beautiful. I knew we were on to something. Um, people kept coming up to me throughout that day, through the rest of the week, then for the rest of the show, going, you're going to use that whole song, right? When he sings, you're going to use all of it, right? I said, yeah, I'm going to use all of it. They're like, it's so fucking haunting. When he sings, it's really, really beautiful. It's kind of sweet. Even though we're in the midst of this horror movie, there's something really nice about it. And people fell in love with it so much that every once in a while I'd be like, you know what, man? Here's another place where we could put a song. You want to sing something here? And Michael would be like, well, we could try this. I like this song. This would, this would make sense here, blah, blah, blah. All of them, of course, public domain or as public domain as we could get them. But at a certain point, I think it was the fourth time I, I asked you to sing, you were finally like, what the fuck is this, an Elvis picture? <laughs> <laughs> But it was a, a really, I think I, we found a way to incorporate, uh, mu- singing I'm, in a way that 
took away the need for anything else. You know what I'm saying? Like I, this movie's dry. I don't put a score yeah. um, or a soundtrack, you know, in, in the flick at all. We play it pretty fucking dry. The only time you hear music in the movie is when you're singing or playing and stuff like that. Was that, did you know going in, did you like, I want to sing as much as possible or was that just kind of like when it happened? Oh God, no. 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 You wanted a opening song. Yes. For we first introduced the congregation to myself. And that was all I thought I'd be doing. Mm. I'll tell you what he did to me. <laughs> At the end of the picture, there's, you get credit, so he says, listen, uh, Michael, I got, uh, I got five minutes I want you to fill us. What about 15 seconds? What about 15 seconds? No, no, and it turned out to be six. Something like that. Six minutes. It's the best fucking credit sequence to a movie I think you've seen in like ten years. It is what? ripping. Yes. More than that. You're right. Ever. <laughs> I jest. I jest. No, you're you're not jesting. They'll see. What? They'll see soon. Um, I'm gonna open up to them. We're gonna see what they're they're gonna ask you some questions. I've been asking too many. Let me grab that mic and uh, and we'll go somewhere in the audience. Here's right here. Ask a question of Mr. Michael Parks. Um, you've accomplished so much in your career. Is there anything left that you uh, still are, are are looking forward to that you'd still like to accomplish? What the hell? <laughs> Did you think I'd quit? <laughs> no, I think it's all there to come for me. Uh, yeah, there's some roles I would gladly do. Love to do. And, and I'm gonna do, uh, an album, which is gonna be a kick. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that is, can I talk about that a little bit? You got all you want. We, uh, based on uh, all the singing and the flick, um, at one point, John Gordon had a, a real fucking, uh, brain fart, kind of cool brain fart moment. <laughs> Where he was just like, let's record, let's re-record the songs with Michael. Because all the songs in the movie were sung on the set. Like, we didn't go into a sound booth or anything like that. Most of the stuff was just sung there. So, when you hear him singing, it's just kind of singing on the set. So, John was like, maybe we can go into the studio and do something. All of it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. Pretty much. Um, he said, we'll go into the studio and re-record the songs, not for the movie, just to compliment the movie. And I was like, alright, let's do it. And they went in last week. What was it like? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or something like that. And they sent uh, John sent me the songs, and they're fucking beautiful. They're just so so good, and and they'll kind of stand on their own without the movie too. Oddly enough, they'll stand up as like uh, Christian spirituals. Um, like, and as long as nobody ever says, "Oh, it's from that horror movie that the fat clerks guy made," <laughs> no one will ever know. Um, so as we were recording, um, as, as those, or as you guys were recording those, uh, I guess the, the project came up, like Michael's got an album that he wanted to do. And John Gordon was just like, we gotta make this album, let's make the album, man. I was like, totally, let's fucking do it, cause Michael's singing is really fucking beautiful. And, and the singing, and the album he was talking about doing is, um, uh, to say that country tinged is fair, correct? Country blues jazz, uh, Influence. Jazz more and jazz influence. A lot well. of jazz influence in country. You can, you can, 
to me, it's, you know, Charlie Parker, the bird, mm-hmm. that was a bass player, I used to play with him, and uh, there was a little joint in New York that used to hang out in a little bar, there was a, they had a jukebox, and Bird was always dropping quarters and playing country songs, you know, and this other cat said, yeah, I don't understand, what's wrong with you? He said, why are you playing that? Why are you playing them song? He said, listen to the story. And and that's it's very true because mm. in a lot of jazz it gets awfully shishi for me. Mm. A lot of country gets twangy and crappy. I mean, I can't take most country music today. It's it's uh, anthems. I think they all want to be Dion. What's her name? You know the way they sing now. It's not. It's not. It's not really country. And the the lyrics, mundane. You know. Mm. I pulled her on the back of that truck. Mm-mm-mm. Boy, did we! Fuck <laughs> <laughs> that stuff. It's awful stuff. But if you get Cindy Walker or, or Hank Williams, wrote some beautiful. And uh, then it's the way you do. It's the way you have fun doing them. And I love musicians. Three three musicians in the same room is a misdemeanor. You know? But I love them to death. And it's always fun to go, to, to do a session, mm. and it's so clicked. It's so, I've always said to actors all my life, well, if you want to get it, you know, hang out with musicians, watch musicians, see how they blend, see how they listen, see how they listen. You can't do it without listening. Mm. You can't do it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have fun doing this album. Yeah, I had fun the other night with these guys. You show up and they they don't know you, you don't know them, and uh, suddenly it's cooking. It's a wonderful thing. So definitely, as a double album too, you want to do right? Well, I don't know. I was looking at it. my my boy said to me, my son said, "Don't be so goddamn pretentious." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Knock it down, man." Do ten of uh, country and ten of uh, you know, jazz or pop or Johnny Mercer or whatever. Like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, well, hell, I think I've got it down now to eighteen or sixteen, something like that. Because you're right. You don't want to come off as pretentious. I do not. <laughs> I do not. And ostentatious. I mean, my God, to think that you're going to somebody going to rush out and buy your your crap. But <laughs> I count on that, man. Well, <laughs> there's a but there's a first time in my life. There's a disc jockey. It's a big fan. I wish I'd known him over the years. Mm. He's out of Ohio. Larry Ward's his name, and he said, "I'll play it to death. You give me an album, I'll play it to death." And I got fourteen hundred sister stations. I said, "Ooh, well, there's a way to make money then." Yeah. I'll do you one better. There's a way to make money on the internet, too. I'll bet there is if I knew anything about it. I'm from the Paleolithic period myself, dear boy. (laughs) (laughs) I got you covered. Don't worry about that. Um, All right, let's jump back out into the audience. Abe and Cooper seems to be a really great villain. Is this something you a type of role you want to approach again in the future, or are you just happy to have him out of your body? Pays the same. (laughs) (laughs) no I mean you can't go around thinking like Abe and Cooper for Christ's sake any longer you have to but no I've I've played villains before I mean if I get 15 calls about mad preachers and I will 
spent a lot of money on analysis. <laughs> no, but it, it, it's it's a, a a good role and fun doing it. And you're to be the judge, not me. It's a hard one for me. You hope, you always hope that somebody, that people like it. My God, yeah. I mean, I'm not, never above that. There's so many actors that I've worked with that I take it for granted. You know, they're gonna, that people are really going to love them, no matter how goddamn boring they are. <laughs> you know, it's true. There's a lot of movie stars that can't act. They, they're not amenable to the, you know, much. And they're not malleable at all because they have this thing they're selling. You know? Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's rotten, sometimes it's pretentious and boring. I mean, if it, personality, it's a very difficult thing to deal with for me. People have, if people think they see themselves a certain way. What was your first uh, conversation with uh, Kevin like? And did you, did you know, like, who he was before? No, I did not. Uh, John Gordon sent me the script, and and with a note that said, "We would like you, Kevin would like you to do this part." That's all we can say for now. <laughs> so, um, meaning I didn't know what. So then I got a call and said, "Would you come? Would like to meet?" I said, "Yeah." Went up and uh, Kevin. May not, it may not seem so because he's so vociferous about everything, but he's got great ears, great ears. And uh, but when I was up, he, he the, t- at the time we were there and talking, he cooked me a steak. You know, cooked it good too. <laughs> <laughs> His wife came down, very comfortable. She had something to do with the coffee. I never wanted some coffee. You know, Imagine. So, you know Ralph Bridgerton, no. the actor. Sir yeah, 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 yeah. Wonderful actor. You will love this story because he's doing a play on the West End not long before he died. And he's in the middle of the second act. He goes down to the apron. And he said, is there a doctor in the house? And the guy in the back said, yes, he came running down. But Tony rose up and I said, I'm a doctor. What is it? He said, doctor, isn't this a dreadful play? <laughs> <laughs> Um, All right, one more, and then let's get out of here for this evening. I was uh, wondering what you thought of uh, Kevin's um, doing dailies on the show, Mm. showing them to the cast. You mean cutting and whatnot? I kept hearing about them. I somehow I didn't see them. Mm. One day, one day I walked in. Actually, he said, "Hey, you want to see what I just showed everybody?" And I said, "Okay." And I went over and he showed me. <clears throat> but I kept hearing the, and it just seemed to be at times, I don't know, I was putting my shoes on or something. And I never got to see it, but I think it was wonderful. I mean, it's, um, guileless. It's a wonderful quality to have, to be able to be sure and that you love something and that people will love it and to be free about it and not be closed chested. I got a call from a guy one time and I won't say his name, but he, he said, um, because his wife kept whispering in his ear every night, Michael Parks, Michael Parks. And the cameraman was saying, Michael Parks can read this. So he was sick of me by the time he called. And, uh, I mean, really sick of me. Mm. And he said, uh, here's the deal. Okay. 
bless him. But anyway, he, here's the deal. He said, now, uh, be six months shooting, be $25,000 for the role, uh, there'll be no script, you'll see the scenes when I bring them to you in the morning. And John Houston tells me that you were a problem. <laughs> I don't say who this guy is. He's very big at one time, though. He's a big, big director. I said, well, listen, pal. As far as the script, I'll go with the book. Oh, he said, in building where I choose to put it. I said, as far as the script, I'll go with the book. As far as the price, my price is cheap, cheap enough. And, and as far as billing, you don't have to give me any. And if you're as mean a son of a bitch as John Houston was, I don't want to fucking work with you anyway. <laughs> you know. And sometimes you do that, and it gets, it, uh, it causes you, you trouble. But they never want to see what, uh, what the other guy said. No, no. You know why Hitler didn't drink? Said it made him mean. <laughs> um, well, fuck, I can't imagine going out on a better note than that. Uh, you, uh, you, uh, uh, we wouldn't be sitting here. I said it before. I'll say it again. I'll maintain it until this movie's out of my life. And I know this movie will never be out of my life until I'm out of this life in general. But none of this comes to pass unless you don't put all the effort into a 10 minute scene at the head of a movie that some people have put into entire fucking performances. You know what I'm saying? We are all here. We're going to take this long trip over the course of the next year and, and for the rest of our lives with this red state picture all because of you every time any good thing that happens to this movie or to me or to you or to anybody involved because of it it all stems from you i'm going to so tell you the truth i'm going to tell you something personal okay i i seriously uh considered not not acting again and you know probably every morning but 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 seriously i did before i ran into you and i and you and you've really lifted my spirits up oh, i must you. tell you that thanks man uh, no that's the truth my son knows that jim knows that i said right you know the five stages of an actor the first stage is who's michael parks second stage is get me michael parks third stage is Get me a Michael Parks type. And forces, get me a young Michael Parks. <laughs> and the fifth stage is, who's, who's Michael? <laughs> and the three stages of actor, he's 25 years old and it's five minutes before curtain. He said, what last night? My greatest fucker. I'm, God damn, I couldn't believe it. Puerto Rican dancer, son of a bitch. What a be? Now he's 50. He comes in an hour and a half before curtain. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, last night, uh, Mark and I had a wonderful, wonderful French dinner. It's a new restaurant that's uh, 
Trebekah. One. Now he's 70. Two hours before Christmas. Good evening. Good evening. This morning, I had the most incredible bowel movement. <laughs> you fucking rock, Parks. Everyone give it up for Michael Parks. Thank you. Thank you for coming out for the entire semester of Red State. Hopefully we'll see you guys next semester. Thanks and good night. Find more funny shit like this at Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from. There are so many to choose from on the Smodcast Podcast Network. On Sundays, it's me and Scott doing the classic Smodcast, the show that started it all. Mondays, it's me and Ralph Garman doing Hollywood Babylon. There's so many to choose from. Tuesdays, you get a double shot of goodness, man. Malcolm Ingram's blowhard, as well as Red State of the Union Q&As, our podcast show about our forthcoming movie. There's so many to choose from. On Thursdays, drop the gloves with the puck nuts, the same guys that bring you Tell Em Steve Dave on Fridays. And don't forget on Saturdays, Jay and Silent Bob get old with me and Jason Muse. There's so many to choose from. You could try some shows that aren't so regular, just happen every once in a while, like Highlands, a peephole history, where me and people that grew up in the town I grew up look back at the town we grew up in. Smarriage at Smod Castle, where real live people get real live married by real Rev Kev, that'd be me. There's so many to choose from. Smodimations, that's where me and Scott are drawn as cartoons. They take little sections of Smodcast we've done and animate them, man, and make them even funnier somehow. And if you've ever been to Smod Castle, then you've met Matt Cohen, and Matt Cohen has his own show, Bagged and Boarded, which is also now at Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from. I know you keep telling me, man, but did you know that most of the podcasts at Smodcast.com are recorded live in front of a studio audience at Smodcastle, our theater out in Los Angeles on Santa Monica Boulevard between Wilcox and Cole. There's so many to choose from. Scott, even at Smodcastle, there are so many to choose from. Every week, you could see Malcolm Ingram do his show, Blowhard Live. You could see me and Jason Mewes doing Jay and Silent Bob Get Old. You could see Matt Cohen doing Bagged and Boarded. You can come see Tom Green do a show down there. You could see me and Mosier doing the occasional Smodcast 3D. There's so many to choose from. That's right. For one low price, 100 bucks, you could see every show. That happens in Smodcastle for a month. Every show you go, you get that basically comes down to be like four bucks a show. I mean, come on, you can't get a better deal than that. Go to smodcastle.com slash smodpass for the smodpass, or just stay right here on smodcast.com and listen to any of the shows that we throw up there free for nothing because we love you. And guess what? There's so many to choose from. That's right, Scott. There are so many to choose from. Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from.